Knock, knock. You about to get shell shock. That's from TMNT 2's uh, Wiz Khalifa song, by the way. You should look it up. It's called Shell Shock. <laughs> In honor of Knock at the Cabin and this podcast called Trial by Content's Worst Twist Episode, what oh, M. Night Shyamalan movie has the best twist? Uh, I'm I'm Katie Rich, and I'm like I'm really kind of fifty fifty on Shyamalan movies. I haven't seen a good number of them, but I do feel like the Village's twist has been unfairly uh, ragged on. Good twist. Uh, on that patches, I'm gonna have to go with Mr. Glass in Unbreakable. I mean, they call him Mr. Glass, and he did all that stuff. Twist. <laughs> I should say Sixth Sense. It's so obvious, but like the way Sam Jackson delivers an M Night Shyamalan twist, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. goes a long way. I also wrote it in a way where you didn't have to say the twist, but I'm glad that you did because spoilers don't matter. I'm Dave with the seven and I'm going to say the visit and I'm going to let you discover that on your own if you want to uh, discover it. I'm David. Anyway, the question was the best M. Night Shyamalan twist. Yeah. What M. Night Shyamalan movie has the best twist? What M. Night Shyamalan movie has the best twist? Um, is there a twist inside? Oh, I guess the twist in signs is that like, it's all everything Stay happens away. for a reason. Wow. Uh, all those yeah. glasses of water. Yeah, all those glasses of water. God um, put them there. Uh, well, I can't think of a better twist than the fact that tonight I finally become addicted to Marvel Snap just in time for my paternity leave and just in time oh, wait, for now new game it's mode. cool. Oh, I see. Uh, but <laughs> that, uh, that is certainly a more satisfying <laughs> twist than anything you will find in Night Shyamalan's Knock at the Cabin. But I guess oh, to on. answer the lightning round question. Uh, I gotta go with, um, with Unbreakable. I mean, hate to agree with Patches, but, like, that was the one that felt like it was <laughs> the most the twist. Sort of baked into the, I mean, <laughs> he, he lost a lot of goodwill for me with the, the two other movies in the Unbreakable CU, but, yeah, yeah, that's the twist. Was there, that I agree with was there a twist in the happening? I can't even remember. Uh, just, or is that it just it was like the plants. The premise. Was, the, yeah, the premise. Just, the premise is the twist. Said, uh, yeah, that's that happens in the very beginning. Lance. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good. Then, well then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's it's awesome. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 422, Pandemic 156. It is the week of Wednesday, February 1st, February. That's the day that in 1982, Late Night with David Letterman premiered. It's before I was born. Did you ever we're watch yeah. old, but we're, we're not a, that old. Like a late night watcher? No, how did anyone ever stay up late enough to watch any of this stuff? My neighbors had TV, little TVs in their rooms, and they would stay up until like one a.m. in no. middle school and high school. Absolutely, that was not no. my that was not my experience. I was reading no. assigned books, falling asleep at eight thirty in my bed, uh, even in. High I school, always found so. something kind of like spooky about late night TV. It's like no one else is watching. Like all just like the infomercials in the sense that like there's nobody paying attention to what's on TV. I don't know. Huh. Not, not not a fan. David Letterman is your Babadook or something. <laughs> David <laughs> Letterman breathing in the shadows of late night TV. It's more like like reruns of Parker Lewis can't lose. Or I was like, what is this? <laughs> Who's watching this? This is my relationship with Beavis and Butthead. I found them to be mm-hmm. terrifying objects of like all the lights off playing late at night on MTV, even though they probably aired at like 10 p.m. I'm glad we were both really cool. This yes, definitely. Just... No, not squares here. Nah. Uh, we're back. David's back. Uh, and David, do we have any reviews to celebrate your return? Uh, we do not. 
What? You do not. What? Even though I I came back uh, on on what could be. I mean, at this point, it's looking unlikely because it's nine seventeen at night as we record this. But I was going to say, could be the night that my daughter is born. Uh, we are we are waiting now any minute to rush to the hospital. And I came all the it way back quickly on my couch to do the computer um, for the last time for a few weeks, I would imagine. And what did I find? No reviews. None. Although, I have a review of something I heard in the last episode, uh, which is that I, uh, I had said, I suppose, and this definitely checks out, that no child of mine would ever watch like a Pixar movie or something like that. <laughs> the, spirit, the spirit of what I was saying. Uh, was that <laughs> no child of mine, you know, as far as as far as I could control it, as far as it seemed like a good idea to enforce, could watch like the minion, like the lowest common denominator type of CGI animation. Pixar itself, there are movies. It's hard for me to imagine that I ever would have thought that like Wall-E or something shouldn't be one of the first movies mm-hmm. that I showed my kid. But I do think like that some backtracking just because I've mm-hmm. submitted and surrendered to the Pixar of it all does not mean. That I have just thrown, you know, three sheets to the wind. Fuck it. Uh, my kid can watch fucking Coco Melon and Minions Four and all that shit all day long. Not, not. I do think it. there's a way to avoid this because my daughter has osmosis absorbed Paw Patrol, but has never seen Paw yeah. Patrol. And we have kept. We just don't watch Paw Patrol, and the reason is there's we've curated many better options. And so you well, can't just it's stick not to like on the one apps thing. that we have. If if it's some bullshit that's on Netflix and that's going to pop up on a carousel but for you them, can like still Coco avoid Melon. Coco Melon. It's hard though if they find it themselves. Like Paw Patrol is not on Netflix, do so we don't see anything it. themselves. I got to tell like you, a picture. They're, they're like <laughs> like if they have the remote, they're scrolling. You got to keep like, finding oh, the next fun. good thing. And there's actually lots of always good things. Katie, have you guys watched Hilda? We're into Hilda right now on Netflix. No, Hilda no, is I, like I, Adventure Time adjacent, kind of. Swedish. Uh, One of the aesthetic. beautiful things cool. of having a three-year-old, uh, that being your oldest and for at least this episode, still only child, uh, is that you ha- you haven't had to be a parent for long enough to realize that all of your like hot take ideas as to how parenting works or have all been debunked by other people. And so I'm still <laughs> in uh, like living under the delusion and raising parent raising a child under the delusion that you can actually keep your kids away from certain things. Um, and that it doesn't really matter in terms of like their development, what it is that you expose them to, and that like people are being wildly overprotective about that sort of thing. Um, again, I have a three-year-old. I'll probably be singing a very different tune when he's five. But it is a this luxury is of having only a three-year-old. You can. I can just can be like everyone else is getting taste. this shit wrong, and uh, you know, there are all these things that people have decided are conventional wisdom or have resigned themselves to. You can either go against or, you know, decide that you, you don't have to surrender to. So, you know, we'll see. But uh, you can train the beauty of recording taste. this is that one day I'll be able to listen back and laugh. Just like, <laughs> just like I did, apparently saying that uh, no child of mine would ever watch a Pixar movie, and now I have a kid who is intermittently addicted to Wally. Uh, you can train your kids to have good taste, but you can't keep them from like, indulging in occasional bullshit. Just like adults who but watch, you know, good movies and also Love is yeah. Blind. You know, it's a very <sighs> spectrum. I mean, Love is Blind is a masterpiece. But I also, like, it was on my sight and sound ballot, like, the Twin Peaks The Return, which actually made it on the top 250, which is infuriating, even though Twin Peaks The Return rules. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I do want to make, want to be clear that it's not about, it's not about enforcing, like, good taste for your kids. I've really always made it a point, and Ace is not really at the age where this is relevant yet, but... I will continue to make a point not to be that parent that is just like, I'm going to have the nine-year-old kid who's fucking like really into the pixies, 
you know, like, like I, I don't need to model uh, my kid after my own tastes. I, you know, I'm, it's going to be more exciting and more interesting to himself to watch him figure shit out on his own. But I, I, I do, do have think, the six-year-old who's into Avatar and no one at his age sure. has any idea what he's talking That's about. That's fine. That's a little thing here. And no there. one our age has like, any idea what he's talking about. <laughs> yeah, right. no, one, yeah. no one has ever seen Avatar despite Charlie is the Loak? The, Who the is Loak? Charlie has been the one seeing all those movies. <laughs> no uh, one's talking about it. It's like cha- talk to Charlie. This. Mommy, it's no one likes my Tokan <laughs> Halloween <laughs> costume. Can, can, can we leave Charlie's full name off the podcast? Fine. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> It's it's with an apostrophe. They'll never find it. Um, but the uh, but yes, I I I we'll see. We'll see how parenting goes. So far, so far, I have. But I'm sure to have. Wait until you have a second one. Good luck to you, David. And uh, you'll you. probably be away from the podcast a little while, but we'll we'll miss you. Well, we may not have reviews, Katie, but we do have two emails. <laughs> Fitwr.podcast at gmail.com. That's right. Um, our first one comes from Dr. Dark uh, from Central New York, who says, uh, writes in uh, with the subject, Asian actors who do plays and characters. In addition to Merle Oberon, who we were talking about with uh, Oscar trivia and talking about Michelle Yeoh, who's persuaded to hide her Sri Lankan heritage so she could be a star. I'd like to add Boris Karloff, who is also one-fourth Anglo-Indian, Cal Penn, who's 100% Southern Asian, and Brandon Lee, who is Chinese Anglo-American as is Chloe Bennett. While Karloff wasn't outspoken about his background, he didn't make it some kind of deep, dark secret either. Lee, of course, never hid his heritage, especially given his father was Bruce Lee. And while Chloe Bennett and Cal Penn changed their names, they're both very open about their Asian heritage. While I'm no fan of David Ehrlich, I'm sorry to hear he has COVID-19. Hopefully he's up to date on his booster shots and it's a relatively mild case and his family either somehow escaped contracting it or have relatively mild cases as well. Funny, it actually went the other way around. I think David David dodged the bullet. Well, they didn't. Uh, yeah, uh, they they, they don't like you, but they don't wish uh, death by COVID on That's you. Good. Well, That's good. That's improvement. Yeah, no, I dodged it. It was only my nine month pregnant wife that uh, got hit the hardest. So it all came out in the wash, I guess. <laughs> uh, that means your unborn wait. child probably has a lot of antibodies and it's going to be very healthy. Uh, one more email. This one comes from Liam from Canada, and the subject is movie stars. It starts, hello, Fitwer. This is a question couched in international review. I've left a review before, so that feels less important than the question. Still five stars, though. On episode 421, Patches says there are no movie stars anymore. People say this a lot, and I don't understand it. One, people who are movie stars pre-franchise and internet fame are still at large. Top Gun just happened. Two, even if the franchise is the bigger star, many Marvel, Twilight, Harry Potter, etc. actors are household names. Three, should newcomers be held to the same criteria for pre-aughts movie stardom? Isn't it enough that a few million people will watch Florence Pugh cook for a few minutes now and then? Does she also have to sell out theaters in 2023? We still know her from movies. What do people really mean when they say there are no movie stars anymore? Thank you for your insights. I want want Kay to answer this, but I do want to immediately push back on the idea that just because millions of people watch Florence Pugh's Instagram means she's a movie star. Yeah, she should probably sell out movies to be a movie star. She could be an Instagram famous person. That's I mean, different. Don't worry, darling, made a good bit of money. Are you saying that she can't sell a movie? I'm saying she has not. She is not the factor of that movie doing well, I, I would argue. I, Harry I, Styles, I the, actual famous person is. The more relative, the more, the more relevant truth, rather, is that having a large Instagram following does not equal 
or you know with any sort of movie stardom i think that that is true many times over um yeah i mean you I think could debate large... whether or not she uh was the driving factor behind why don't worry darling made what some studio accountants would call an acceptable amount of money uh but you know they, they were able to keep their jobs but uh i i think there was a lot more going on in that particular tempest yeah, I mean, the definition of a movie star is someone who people will go see the movie just because they're in it. And, you know, I think arguably like Top Gun Maverick isn't an example of that. Like Tom Cruise is the, by every definition a movie star, but like the franchise is the thing, not him. I think, I mean, Tom Cruise, really, like, when, he, when he made non-Mission Impossible, non-Top Gun movies, they didn't necessarily do all that well. Valkyrie. I also don't, I mean, Lions I, I for think, Lambs. <laughs> I think that there are not people who are as larger than life as probably the last generation of movie stars that were minted and like like Jennifer Lawrence maybe is the last example we can think of of someone who got like vaulted that status like the way media exists has just changed so much but I also think like if someone is a star to you then they're a star like it doesn't right. don't let people tell you that this person isn't a star especially when it comes to like uh, TikTok uh, fame or YouTube fame like it's just it's just not the same I mean, definition of like universal stardom you can you can say you know someone is certainly entitled to like who they like and if they certainly choose to see a movie just because a certain person is in it then then sure you could say that they are a star to them but i do think that that sort of emotional uh distillation of it misses the point of what stardom was really uh how it yeah, functions it's not the, same, and the economics sure. behind it um yeah it we were same. probably provoked to have this conversation because of simu lu arguing that he was a movie star after chang <laughs> Jeez, if you have to argue that you're a movie boss. star, you're not a movie star. That is the first rule. Yeah. So, I think that's what Babylon's is actually about, if you watch it again. Yeah. If you watch um, Babylon. Would love that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, and, and yeah. I mean, anyway. I feel like the industry's just changed where it's like Florence Pugh is cooking on YouTube and Instagram instead of after her second movie, she gets to start her own tiny production company that makes Flores Pew movies. Like I think she does actually have way. a tiny production company. That and makes like that's Flores what like Margot movies, Robbie I, is well, doing that and making her own movies. But I don't I don't think I would call Margot Robbie a movie star, at least by the same like Brad there, Pitt, Tom Cruise. There are I mean Margot Margot Robbie I think is a lot closer to being a movie star than someone like Florence Pugh. Um and to a lot closer than almost any other major actress who's come up in the last ten years. But, I really um, want her to be a movie star. I feel, yeah. I feel I, like sure. I mean, Hollywood is, is hoping to, to be, that, that they, they can have so a movie star they can reliably plug into movies and draw people to go see them. But uh, Amsterdam would suggest uh, Amsterdam is a huge argument is a huge argument against the idea that the star system continues to work. Um, but yeah, look back at like even in the 90s, the way that people were able to weaponize their star power. Jim Carrey having three movies that were number one at the box office that purely relied on his star power and brand appeal. In a single year. Of a single clear, year. Three movies in a yeah, year. Yeah, yeah, um, And there's just such a vast ocean between what star power used to mean and could do and what people are trying to mistake it for these days. Um, but it doesn't mean you can't love these people. It doesn't mean you can't want to follow their That's careers. so it's true. Just, uh, it's a different model. You know why Fighting in the Worm is a great podcast? We haven't even started the show yet, really. <laughs> this is the beginning. This is the opening. And we haven't even gotten to the 15 minutes in, we not even on. to the content. People seem to like this. I uh, don't they, know. I mean, we're not, we're not hearing complaints. If you like it, welcome to feel free to, to review us. it or send us a letter. If you don't like it, just send us angry tweets because those don't count toward our iTunes rating. <laughs>
Well, if you're an Oscar nerd and maniac like me, you might have expected that All Quiet on the Western Front would have gotten a bunch of Oscar nominations. But if you're a normal person, you probably didn't because this is a German war epic, uh, an adaptation of a book that's already been adapted into a Best Picture winner um, that showed up on Netflix. It debuted at the Toronto Film Festival last September and was pretty quiet because at the time Netflix was very focused on Bardo and White Noise <laughs> and other films that didn't really get any Oscar Yeah, this feels like Bardo a Squid Game situation, like totally underestimated accident rises to the top for that Netflix when a, all of their energy is before. That is things. a pretty good comparison. Um, it's this very large scale movie. And then when you look at the Oscar nominations, it gets, you're like, and if you've seen the movie, you're just like, oh yeah, it had really good makeup. Oh yeah, it had pretty good sound. It had a pretty good score. It's a, like a large scale movie that is kind of made to get a bunch of nominations like this. Um, but then it also shows up in Best Picture, which is not necessarily a certainty. So clearly a lot of people like this. A lot of people are watching it. I think Netflix reported some numbers that it got a really big boost on the platform uh, once it came out. But a, lot Although, of it has, a lot of it has to do with the fact, I would think, Katie, you can corroborate this or tell me I'm wrong, that all of Netflix's other Oscar horses uh, ate shit. And yeah, no, they much they funneled a lot of their resources um, and the the bandwidth and the marketing space that they had behind this one movie. Although it happened pretty late, like it was it only oh, when the sure. Oscar, it was only when the Oscar shortlist came out on December twenty first that people were like, "Oh wow!" Like that movie showed up in a lot of places. I guess there's a surge. People are in, calling and... it the Andrea Riceborough of movies. <laughs> are they? No. Are they? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, I'm starting that here. <laughs> Uh, speaking of best actors, Netflix did get that Ananda Armas nomination for Blonde, so good on them. Um, so anyway, it is it is a tough sit by pretty much any definition. It is a fascinating movie to think of watching on Netflix, um, that where you can very easily walk away from it. I watch it at home. Um, I do think it would probably be a much better big screen experience. But then again, Netflix has made it available to more people, so it's the eternal conundrum. Um, I think this movie, like from the like film nerd cinephile corner of Oscar followers, it's not getting all that much respect. It, similar to how 1917 was received a couple years ago another world war one movie i don't i like 1917 a good bit i don't think it's as good but it's pretty good it's pretty compelling while being a really tough watch and a total bummer um but <laughs> you're I talking think about all lot... quiet not yes okay i mean all quiet uh 1917 all quiet on the 1917 um <laughs> 1917 was is some similar vibes i think the one the one shot thing really gave it an energy and all quiet on the western front is kind of meant to make you be like War is awful. War is awful. Here come some tanks that are going to roll some roll over some people. Have you? Yeah, really that image really stuck out to me. A guy uh, gets smushed yeah. by a tank. It seems uh -huh. to be something I should enjoy from the movie's perspective. But you're not supposed to enjoy. <laughs> well, the, it's like the, the conundrum yeah. of this. The conundrum of this movie. You know, I often think, David, who who is the person who banged the drum about that every every war movie is anti-war movie? Was that, uh, Francois uh, Truffaut. No, Truffaut was that every movie is pro-war. I'm pretty oh, sure. Oh, right. That Wait, was someone saying that every war movie is an anti-war movie? Maybe. I, yeah, that's a, that's a common thing, that if you if you tell any story of war, it is, it is about how awful war ultimately is. And then Truffaut's mm. counter is like, anybody like who points a camera at did war... Say. Uh, uh, Truffaut's argument is that if you make a movie about war, you're, you're glorifying you're it. Glorifying you're glorifying it. Indulging in it. And while I do think that this movie falls into... Both categories, you know, when you watch a tank run over <laughs> someone and, and they spend a lot of time. Uh, the person you're thinking smush. of, Matt Patches, is yeah. uh, Steven Spielberg. Oh, I see. <laughs> Who? <laughs> Mr. Fableman. Um, yeah, and, and my reaction to this movie was like, man, we're, we've seen this so many times now. This is every every war movie is another war movie is my mm. I'm adding to the mm. to the 
the lines here. I'm just like, this is, there's nothing going on in this movie. It's two and a half hours. Wow. It's a famous novel. It is so much blood and It is also a, it also a very famous film adapted from said famous novel. Oh, sure. And, so and, and pretty close pro- in close proximity to the, the actual war, right? Like, when did the original All Quiet on the like Western 19, Front movie 1929, come out? Like, like, 10 years later. Yeah. Um, it just must have been shocking to see. But I, I just don't understand this movie on any level. Like, it has nothing to say, right? What? What wow. is? I am. What is, I am right with you, Patches. This is a bad. This is a bad movie. This seems wow, so guys. telegraphed to me by everything that has been written about this movie, everything that you're just saying that I truly could not force myself, even after 31 Sundance movies. Okay, no, no. Uh, here's the thing. Here's the thing, David. The energy to watch this. I understand its cinematography nomination and the technical things that Stunning. Katie's talking about Stunning. are actually here. Like the sound mixing is great. The design of the movie is fantastic. Uh, I think it's really choosing its shots really well, but it seems to have gutted any version of story or theme in favor of making it like this uh, infinity loop of just carnage that I, I think is really out of context because there aren't any characters to back it up. There aren't an infinity pool of carnage. <laughs> no, we'll, 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 we'll get, get there. there. The Infinity uh, Pool is that crater full of mud that they just all get stuck in. <laughs> but yeah, the, I, a lot of what's been cut um, from this adaptation, from the so previous wait, adaptations, Dave, and you've from read the, the book. Or you've seen wait, what, what's your? I've just seen. I've seen the. I've seen the previous uh, the nineteen twenties huh. version as I've part of my my AFI uh, one hundred films one hundred years uh, checklist, um, which was you know fun. Uh, but that gave me the idea of what the outline of the book actually is. And it's a lot about these characters and you spend time with them before they join the war. And then during what this movie takes as a time break, they return home from the war and realize they've changed. And this movie decides to fit all of that into dialogue in between just like kind of mind numbing carnage that looks great. But ultimately, because the war is pointless in how much ground they cover uh which is at at the end of this movie where it really should be at the beginning because that's if the movie has a thesis it's that you know that this was all pointless right exactly uh but then what it substitutes in instead is this plot that doesn't exist in the previous adaptation from my google understanding doesn't exist in the book of them signing the armistice so Mm -hmm. what we've added and they've added in uh a third act heel turn from a, one more battle. a, a ger- yeah a german uh it's a, i will general. say that moment is very shocking so obviously we've seen a lot of war up until this point with there's 30 minutes left in the movie and then yeah there's the artist and and we, the war is over but we're gonna do one more battle guys let's get back out there and show them a good time um, yeah and <laughs> that I, is and I, psychotic and um and terrifying that that got me under my skin. I will say there's a lot of moments like this that have nothing to do with the act of war, uh, or at least the, on the battleground. That's where this movie is the most effective, where people are being kind of chilled to the core of having to go back into war. It, this movie almost needed more of like the jarhead, what's it like waiting for to die? Um, but mm. there's so much glorification, accidental, I suppose, because it's supposed to be an anti-war film, but like, wow people blowing up because they get hit by a shell or like I'm just not, the, I'm not, people I'm getting not lit sure. on fire. Cool. The war scenes are fine. I'm not sure if we, 
end in the spot though where it's just like all war is hell and like the the movie is like don't you love these guys you know nothing about and i'm like yeah sure because they're our protagonists i'm on the the they're human and then at the towards the end of the movie they're like don't you also hate french farm boys and i'm like no they're being invaded no, that French farm boy had yeah. quite a sour look on his face. Yeah, that French farm boy. You're supposed to hate that kid. You're supposed to recognize that, like, he is a boy being raised in this culture of masculinity, where and he's probably going to go fight in World War II, and like the cycle of violence has been passed down directly to him. I'm not saying he's like it's a toxic an interesting. Oh, wait, oh, wait. Actually, you know what? That's that's exactly <laughs> that's exactly what what you're talking about is. I think what makes this movie bad is this is a World War One movie that knows World War Two is coming and is like we could just make that it's part like of the loop. But I mean, sort of. But the I, idea I that, why that would make it bad because we're sitting in an armistice where the Germans are like, don't be too mean to us. Or we're going to hold it against you. And the French are like, fuck you, sign it. And we're like, it's a German movie. So I'm supposed to be like, oh, yeah, you know, you should have listened to Daniel Brühl than when you were like wrapping up World War One. It's so confusing when it's not at war. And the only reason it's at war, I think, is because of the kineticism of the filmmaking. And that makes it sort of just basically work as like filmmaking that I want to see, but it's not helping the theme or the story, right. which I think it makes it feel really hollow to me. When I say I like the scenes that are not at war, I'm specifically talking about any scene where the, the boys are stealing food. There's mm-hmm. multiple scenes in this movie where they're like starving and, and running amok and get it. There's getting some bread from the French or in the trench. They, they actually like stow after brutally just assaulting people in the in the trenches point blank shooting them in the face then they stuff their faces full of like foie gras and bread and i'm like oh this is this is that french this is is like real stuff this is what they had to do and all the rats running around gross um there's this kind of like down to earth nature of the movie that i wish was was more present but it's constantly ramping back up into violence which i suppose on some level it feels the duty to do but it it's interesting had anyone heard of the filmmaker who made this movie who's not part of the conversation of of the awards of it all katie at all oh he came very close to getting a best director nomination i would really yeah i guess it would make sense based on all the other nominations but yeah Yeah. he's like not a not a presence. He's a, mostly a TV director. He did Deutschland '83. He did The Terror. He did that Your Honor show with uh, Brian Cranston. Like he's a NYU Patrick grad. Melrose. Yeah, he's he's like just a TV guy, and he went and made this movie. I find that just fascinating. a TV it's, guy. Wow. He's, he's made just, he's made an entire medium Germany. found dead in a trench. <laughs> obviously, that is that is reductive and and rude. But I think there is something to like. When the Marvel studio system plucks TV directors to kind of shoot for the suits and fill in the CG battles of it all, there's That's a bit of that vibe like this to this. Really? Yeah, it's like we're gonna do the war scenes and you make the actors do stuff that seems poignant. You don't find you don't get that from this movie. You no, liked it more I, than us, I think. Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. I mean, I'm like I'm not like a huge fan of it, but like, but I also think, I think the grind of blows, it is so... like. The grind of the war scenes is very intentional. Like that's it's not just me. Like, hey, let's like shoot a cool war scene movie. Like there is a there's a directorial point of view behind this stuff. I agree yeah. with you that I think it needs more of those like m- specific human moments. Like the 
the scene where he's stuck in the crater with the French guy, like, yeah, I was like, oh, Jesus, I can't watch this anymore. But then I thought I thought it turned into something more interesting. Just the idea of them connecting as human beings as opposed to this battle. But it's it's like a parody because I feel like we've seen it in every war movie in some. I feel like 1917 had a very similar moment where the, both sides are kind of meeting or like War Horse. I, I just did my imagination. If I retained any memory of War Horse, I'm sure there's a scene where the two sides I mean, are, are meeting in no man's I, land to I think it's see a each fine other scene. as human. It's just but weird it's that we learn more. After he's already killed him. Like that's we what's learn, interesting about it. We learn more about that French guy than we do about a uh, horny cohort whose job it is is to be horny and then get lit on fire. Yeah, I like, can never tell those guys That's apart. my that's my problem is our main characters pop up every once in a while to do something horrible. But like, that's kind of, that's kind of it, which makes like the not war scenes seem like melodrama. I'm not interested in. And then makes the war scenes seem like really extreme. The tank stuff. Like, yes, it's horrible that we think it's awesome, but it is awesome because that's like most of the stuff that I've seen or most of the things that seem to be updated from what this movie's trying to say versus the novel or any of the other previous film adaptations is just how brutal they could show us the war is. Uh, and I, I didn't need convincing on that front. Maybe yeah, that's I wanna, war. I don't want to be yelping like, oh shit, like I'm watching Gerard Butler in plane. So you wanted uh, to feel all worse to watch this movie? I guess I did. Yeah, to echo movie. myself from the whale, dunk my head in the toilet and make <laughs> yeah. me feel really bad. I shouldn't be like, hell yeah, when the guy gets smushed by a tank. I should be like, this is truly not. awful. Yeah, you should not be, because that is really distressing. I mean, yes, but I, like it would have been less distressing if any of these people had been humanized correctly, is what I just want to keep coming back to. Like the thing yeah. that but it probably would have been more distressing if they'd been humanized correctly, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Caring about that character. I, <laughs> well, I guess yeah, to, but... to, to kind of wrap it up, like, and my point at the top, which is, is there anything left to say about these wars? Not to say that they aren't horrible and that they are history that people need to continue to learn. It's not, invo- like, it's valuable to understand the atrocity of World War One or World War Two. Do we need these movies? Like, do they feel like we're innovating within this space? I feel like these stories have just World been told War... and told and told. I think World War One is especially interesting from American perspective because America wasn't in World War One very long. We didn't have that many World War One veterans, whereas in like Britain and Germany, it completely transformed their countries and led to World War Two. Um, and it's easier to forget from our perspective. It's also further in the past. Like we didn't know any World War One veterans as children, like we did for World yourself. War Two. Um, <laughs> around some old ass men. You really did. <laughs> um, but also like the the um the heroism of World War Two um for Americans especially I think is really vivid. And World War One, the whole point of this movie that there were no heroes, it was pretty pointless, and nobody really won, and nothing really changed. And that's kind of the disaster of it. And I think a movie really looking that straight in the eye that there is value in that. I guess yeah, I think like, if, if you're weighing like this versus 1917, I think 1917 is a little bit more successful because it, you know, does a little bit more character development and is cool to watch. Whereas this one, I just kind of throw it in like cool to watch. But I, I like I get what you're getting at patches. I'm just worried if we start abandoning war movies because they are. Oh, I'm not suggesting abandoning battles. war movies. I'm suggesting that we are fetishizing World War Two and World War One. And that for a stretch there, we were making like Vietnam War movies and really grappling with the messy wars that you don't think this is grappling with a messy war. No, I don't. 
That's I crazy. I think it is depicting war for entertainment value. And that maybe we should start turning the lens towards wars that are fucked up and and politically fucked up and, and, and humanly what fucked is the, up. What is the point of all those armistice scenes if not to prove that World War One was politically fucked up? I mean, up? Daniel Bruhl, I mean, we should mention, Daniel Bruhl's in this movie just talking, yammering on in talking German about, about how this war is politics. really politically fucked up and stupid. Like, what is the point of that message at the end about how they, the, the front line moved, like, not at all? If not to say, this was fucked up and stupid, we shouldn't have done this. I am I am agreeing that that it is, let's say, let me be clear, my argument is not that World War I wasn't fucked up it was definitely fucked up no we should not have world wars i'm against those uh yeah i think i can speak for the podcast when we say we are against <laughs> world wars I, i'm just saying there are i feel like we're ignoring other major conflicts that exist in this world to in, in you think that the they should have remade all fight on the western yeah. front yeah. about like the korean war or about uh, I don't know Desert Storm. They Only just, like, Spike Lee is bold enough to make a Vietnam War movie. It to another in the war. last few years, I mean, <laughs> I, think so. <laughs> I get what you're saying, Patches, but I'm not sure this applies because this is a movie made by Germans from a German novel about a That's war fair. that they they lost to in. Do so, like, yeah, like if we if we were making All Quiet on the Western Front and it turned out like this, then I'd be like, yeah, what are what do the Americans have to add? To this but this is the germans like adding to it and i've been i read an yes. article on the guardian from a few days ago that it is not getting reviewed well there the germans are not liking all quiet on the western really? front interesting uh apparently they just don't think it's a good adaptation of the book and the book is one of germany's treasures and it's I'm surprised loud none and... of us have read the book isn't it often assigned in american high schools i'm like, sure i did i think i did read it in high school I certainly saw the movie uh, back in the day. <laughs> well, I do well think that's that why we did a movie podcast book. and not a fucking book podcast. <laughs> F off books. David, David might know Paul better than all of us if uh, he actually <laughs> read the book. Uh, all Quiet on the Western Front. It's streaming on Netflix. I think that's actually a benefit, like Katie was saying. It's in your home. Don't let us turn you off. Think for yourself. Stream it for a bit. And if it's for you, finish it. It's a tough watch. You might benefit from being able to walk away from what it. What is a tough watch on Netflix? <laughs> Once you've seen the tank squish a guy, uh, you're about halfway through. That's my fam. I'll hold him down forever. Us against the world, we can battle whoever. Um... All right, for our mini segment. I am enraged, folks. I am enraged. <laughs> I got to tell you something. <laughs> um, this is AM radio passion. Brand- <laughs> I am enraged. I am enraged. Call in now. Uh, oh, yeah. Brandon Cronenberg's Possessor was on my top 10 of 2020. I don't know if there was a... I, Infinity Pool, a new release in theaters now, probably one of my more anticipated movies of this year. And I gotta tell you, my 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 movie theater closest to me is weirdly owned by um, the nephew of Camilla Parker Bowles, mm. and uh, <laughs> it's co-owned by him and Patrick Wilson, aka Orm of Aquaman. They own most, most famously theater. known as Orm. Most famously known. <laughs> most famously and these two Orm. movie mafiosos decided to go this weekend instead of putting Infinity Pool into my local movie theater so I could go see it. They put 
Fablement. Do you think Patrick Wilson thinking, personally Patrick, makes these decisions? He's Patrick just sitting Wilson, at home. I'm trying to support Steven Spielberg in cinema. What's wrong with you? I think he, yes, I think he's a hack who's uh, <laughs> trying to get cozy up with Spielberg, thought there was going to be Oscar momentum here. He was uh, wrong. People didn't see Fablemans the first time. They're not going to, look, Fablemans, number two movie of 2022 for me, but why is it back in theaters when Infinity Pool? I have not seen Infinity Pool, and I want David David to, to talk about this movie because I'm so hype. I didn't get to see it. I'm a mad, but is it? should I still be hype? Should I be excited to finally see Infinity Pool from Brandon, my boy? Hmm. I think you're going to enjoy it as uh, the third point in the Brandon Cronenberg line. I had, this is only my second one. I haven't seen the entire uh, run, but... Personally, I am going to revisit this once the unrated cut is made available to me because I thought this movie could have gone a lot harder. Uh, oh. I am not as high on Infinity Pool as the hype had you uh, may have had you think. Um, I've seen it called like the most extreme cinematic experience by pull quote people who have not seen Cold a Serbian marketing. film. What is it actually I, about, Dave? Yeah, okay. I, just, I don't think the movie. Quickly. I don't think the movie is aspiring to that level of fucked up I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that Brandon Cronenberg set out to make the next Serbian film. He could, you know, as many people. Could oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, goal. I mean, uh, but even I think just the seventeen cut be put played into at in to, Correct. In there is a there is more extremity waiting. I mean, and I'm interested to see what that extremity is outside of. Uh, a penis ejaculating, which is the only thing that I know is not in the R-rated version I saw. I mean, we see plenty of that, right? No, oh, I saw right, that. Bro. I saw that penis jizz up everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, this is about a couple. There is uh, a author or a novelist uh, named James and his wife M. They are going to a resort in a made-up uh, fictional foreign country. This resort is for the rich whites. Uh, the rich whites are not allowed to leave the grounds of the resort because they're told uh, the uh, locals are uh, have very extreme laws and uh, are not nice people, are what we are told to, to believe. Um, they, James and his wife meet another couple, uh, Gabby and Albin, I believe his name was. Um, that's the Mia Goth and her husband couple who convinced them to go outside of the compound to a secluded beach for a picnic. They drink a little bit too much. And while Alexander Skarsgård's James is driving back, they hit somebody crossing the road and kill him, which is how they get sucked into the local legal system that has a uh, special uh, clause in their law for tourists and diplomats where if you pay enough money, uh, they will make a clone of you that will be executed in your stay. Uh, this clone will be perfectly copied from you, will have all of your memories up to being cloned, uh, but because uh, their laws are very strict on what constitutes the death penalty, uh, the, about a third of the way through this movie, Alexander Skarsgård watches a small child kill another version of Alexander Skarsgård. And wouldn't you know it, this was sort of Gall Gabby and Albin's plan all along. They usher James into a group of people who call themselves zombies. They are rich white people who come to this resort to basically be able to buy their way out of uh, committing horrible crimes. Ah. Good work if you can get it. 
Yeah. Anyway, that's a, that's a familiar tale to Katie. Is what <laughs> well, she meant by that. Ah. Pre- like pretty early on, again, it was like a, thir- a third or um, a little bit more on from the movie. We're we know what's happening, and we've met the these group of like white people, and very early on, uh, they bring up uh, their you know they're like. You know, uh, will we ever really know if they like, you know, killed the double or like, am I even living at all? Or, you know, it's obvious that these people have been pushed beyond like their limit. And so they're going to then push James, who's sort of bewildered through the whole thing, but also kind of excited to sort of see where his limits are. And it uh, continues to spiral upward and outward. Uh, as, I would as say the mostly movie goes on. it spirals inward was, was my biggest problem. With there the we go. It spirals sort inward. Of- it sort of just circles down the drain, which is a problem that I found with Possessor as well. I think that Brandon Cronenberg definitely has a certain aesthetic going on and some thematic preoccupations uh, that are not the same as his father's, but he is preoccupied with them in a way not dissimilar uh, from his yeah. father. Uh, and he, I mean, he's already sort of, even in the course of three films and really just the last two, established some signature visuals. I mean, there's like another trippy body meld sequence where you see a penis come out of a vagina strobe lights go wild i don't know if that was in your cut dave but that was not in my cut see this i feel Mm. like i'm missing some of the imagery that made people i saw a tweet that i agreed with and it's only because i guess i've seen this cut where it's like david cronenberg gives off his filmmaking like he is actually disturbed by the things that are disturbing in his film Whereas Brandon Cronenberg seems to kind of think they're cool, but I don't get the idea that he's being, he's probing his ideas deep enough to be like actually disturbed by them. I like think that's fi- pretty accurate. I think that, um, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, this felt very superficial to me. It taps into all of the ideas that you think a story about doppelgangers and watching your own clone be murdered and having an existential crisis about it uh, would trigger, but it it really is a lot more interested in. I mean, the most interesting angle it finds in that is sort of the interplay between the, the various people uh, mm-hmm. that we meet. Less, much less so about you know Alexander Skarsgård's character, sort of like his own crisis watching um, his doppelganger be murdered, and more about how these various zombies are are interacting with one another. And while that ends up giving Mia Goth a lot of fun moments to play, one in particular on the hood of a car where she's really just like camping it up to the moon and having a great old time. Um, it, it really is just, you know, chasing its own tail. Uh, and eventually the, the dog imagery that I've just sort of wandered into um, manifests itself and seems more apt than it might if you haven't seen the movie. Uh, but, or haven't seen the video of the Q&A that Mia Goth and Alexander Skarsgård went to on opening weekend that was hosted by friend of the show, uh, Jordan Hoffman um yeah that's right but uh yeah there are layers uh but yeah i mean i i it it was a fun time to watch i think you know brandon cronenberg is obviously a very talented craftsperson has a great command over mood and and tone and imagery striking but uh i think he needs maybe he needs a friend Uh, like his like cronenberg eventually his dad eventually kind of slid into he worked I mean, with a lot I, of writers that would be good i think also just a confidence in his own visual style there's a lot of uh telling before showing in this movie which sort of makes some of it inert for me like just in a really simple idea where you're like you've watched a double of yourself get killed 
why would you ever like physically assault a person with a bag over their head and not expect maybe it could be me under there like mm. it's it, uh, there are a couple of times where this movie's like shocking things get in front or get in front of itself uh to the point where the, like the thing that the scene that david's talking about with mia goth on the hood she's great in that and the pivot i think is great there's just not much more to discover in the movie by that point but it's also like you lose you know the idea of we see this trope oftentimes in doubles in stories of doubles and clones of you see it in avatar in a way of like your their clone having identical memories to you up to a certain point i find it kind of dramatically stifling when it's used as it's used here as opposed to in like riley stern's movie from last year duel which is about a clone uh someone having to fight their own clone to the death because they they create a clone themselves and decide they don't want it or that they're not dying or whatever. I can't remember exactly the details, but they fight it to the death. But they're such distinctly different characters. You can understand sort of the stakes of why you want one version of them to succeed and uh, why that person feels like they need to succeed. But in a movie like this, yes, it's all a mindfuck. It's all about him having his own sort of like, what am I uh, of it all? You know, go to go on a vacation, do some drugs. We've all been there. But it's just that like it doesn't. The, the, the clone is so one-to-one from who he is that when the question becomes, you know, who am I? Am I the person who goes into the box or the person who comes out of it? Uh, you know, the answer is it doesn't matter. <laughs> and it's all about how you frame the question for us. And something like Prestige, which I just referenced, does that in a, in a really interesting way. This movie doesn't because it, it so doesn't matter to us or really to Alexander Skarsgård's character because he's not really able to keep track. Of uh, and I think this some of this boils down to I don't want to be overly logical about a movie that is so carefree about just being a, a mind fuck, but like I, I'm like how, how exactly is this procedure working that it is impossible for the person who is cloned or the clone you know who comes out of the goo to know that they just came out of the glue? Like does everyone just wake up simultaneously on a bed somewhere? Um, I mean they like, they sort of point to things like that, but the point is you shouldn't be thinking about that. This movie yeah. has a brilliant moment where. He's like panicking. He's just been told he's going to be executed, but there might be a way out. And they reveal that this police station has been built with like an ATM concrete, like set in right outside the questioning door. And you're like, yes, more of that movie. And I don't think it manages to be that clever uh, once it gets deeper into its thing. That being said, Patches, I think you should still be psyched to see this movie. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Patches, you're yeah, it's a step. It's a step on the Brandon Cronenberg journey that is leading to him making an absolute classic. Let's just it's hope or Brandon Cronenberg. Some theater. would say. Yeah. <laughs> you've given, so, tell you've that given to Patrick Patch, Wilson. You've given Patrick Wilson too much power. You Come live on, in man. New Jersey. It's a large state with many movie theaters. Um, I can't wait till Infinity Pool pops up in your theater so we could. Before you know. we end this segment, I just want to. I need to add a correction here. Earlier in the segment, I said that. David, Dave, and I would be the experts on watching jizz come out of penises. But Katie, I feel like uh, you also might have seen a lot of that. You know, so I want to make sure we've, that we've all just to end on it, a very infinity pool note here. Like <laughs> yeah. mm. uh, very inclusive. We all have seen that. We're all experts at jizz coming out of penises. We're all, yeah. all jizz exactly ex- right. Bob. All jizz Let's experts here. Let's say we're two.
finish this game with Snap. Um, what? Right. <laughs> Come Listen, on. You I'm had addicted. seen that last this movie. Is all your, this is There's all your fault. There's second screening during the podcast. During all, all quiet, I understand, but I you've mean, seen I, Infinity I, Pool. Yeah. Uh, I mean, David has a lot of cards to collect. It's true. Cool. I'm not used to playing these games where you really can't like put it down for a second, you know? Um, where you like really have to there's another person and there's another person who's just live on the other side waiting for me um anyway for tonight's segment three we're gonna be talking about a little show called the last of us which has been really bizarre i understand the last of us uh was never particularly niche phenomenon it was a massively popular video game from the jump when it came out in 2013 on you know it was published by sony it was a very big deal it was a triple a game uh but there's something about like a, a casual gamer like myself um, when you are playing an immersive third-person game that's offline, largely offline. You're playing it by yourself. You occasionally read an article about it online, but like I don't really have like a community of gamers. I'm not interested in it in that way. My gaming roots go back to being a five and seven, nine-year-old in Nintendo and Sega Genesis and whatnot, uh, just sitting in front of the TV by my lonesome. Um, and it feels, the experience feels very personal to you uh, in a way sometimes that, watching movies doesn't i understand that everyone's on the same journey it's a very linear game but it feels like in a way you were sort of on your own and uh uh i always felt i think in a way it, it partially explains why gamers are so possessive over the things that they love in a way sometimes it's even more extreme than people uh are with other media because it, it feels like they have some sort of personal allegiance to it i remember like seeing the last of us blow up there was like a weird inkling of like third hand pride of just like wow look this thing that i love is also being loved by other people and then uh i will never forget how excited i was it never occurred to me that there could be a last of us part two and uh because the story as you will all see later this season on the show i will not reveal here ends in a way that while it lends itself to more storytelling also feels like it could be a an end point um and i just you know I was so naive in my thinking, so bought into the storytelling that like it didn't occur to me they could make more of these things. I remember my mind being blown by the trailer uh, announcing The Last of Us Part II. Uh, it's the, the very rare thing in the pop culture spectrum that I have a purely like fan-like relationship to uh, in a way that is almost impossible for me to have in regards to movies. I feel like I have it with some musicians, but it's, uh, um, it's very pure on my end. And uh, I also, I, I fell really really head over heels in love with the last of us part two came out during the pandemic right at the start in 2020 right after i had my first child and it's sort of about uh that becomes a big part of the game not that i had a child but that anyone would have a child mm, in, yeah. in, no, in a world you, are David. Part of the yeah. you have a child um, press a to accept and um, press a and b to watch minions uh, and particularly what happens at the end of the anyway like i i related to it very personally um i was lucky enough to interview neil Druckmann and Haley gross who wrote, Haley wrote the game Haley gross uh, and neil Druckmann, who's director and co-creator of last of us um and sort of like further invested myself in this and so a long way of saying that um this monstrously popular show on hbo that is now sort of approaching game of thrones levels fervor and, and the space that it takes up in the discourse still feels to me like this I mean, secret is too strong a word, but this like this this thing that I have sort of been attached to for a long time. Millions upon millions of other people out there in the world have the exact same relationship to The Last of Us, but I do feel like obsessive George R. R. Martin fans must have felt when the first season of Game of Thrones came out. Um, this is going like, to turn oh, you into a toxic Reddit poster. 
It will not, because I have, <laughs> over the 10 years that we've been working in this field, developed uh, expert levels of not giving a shit what people are saying on Twitter. Um, as long as they're not talking about me. <laughs> That's mm. a different story. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, also because part and parcel of that sort of offline relationship that I have with The Last of Us means that it can exist in a closed space. Like, I am comfortable and happy to write about it, but what other people have to say about it necessarily doesn't impact my experience of it, my enjoyment. Um, I've vetted it enough by this point, having played the first game so many times, and recently just again in the PS5 uh, remake that they recently made, and now I'm playing through part two again just because I can't wait uh, until you know three years from now when they finish shooting the second season of the show. But uh, all this is to say that I come to The Last of Us on HBO feeling as far, like very far removed from a non-biased take on it. I'm definitely rooting for this show, and even more so because of the people who are making it. Uh, Craig Mazin, it would definitely be too strong to say that he's a friend of mine, but he's someone I have known casually for a little bit, starting the beginning of the pandemic, uh, while he was developing this, and I did not know that. And then when I learned that he was show running The Last of Us, I was blowing up his DMs, like you can imagine. Uh, but um, I trusted him because of his work on Chernobyl and because uh, I thought that he really understood how to adapt this while avoiding all the pitfalls of adapting. Wait, 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 hold on. I want to stop you there. Can you expand on those two things? Because Craig Mazin has a, you know, not like, he's not one of those people where it's like, let's find the zombie guy to adapt The Last of Us. Yes. And and Chernobyl is not a video game adaptation. They didn't find Craig Mazin. I mean, Craig Mazin found The Last of Us. I mean, they were... Uh, Neil Druckmann was was looking for or like entertaining the idea this could be a TV show if he could find the right partners. But Craig Sam Raimi was trying to make this into a movie yeah. I mean, but that you. was it. We, that was never going to work out because no two hour version of The Last of Us would have worked. And I think Neil Druckmann understood that uh, and had to go through the difficult process of of you know putting that through its paces the hard way. But you know, Craig Mason, he he is. Uh, you know, Chernobyl has some obvious parallels to The Last of Us. Talk about sort of thematically what's doing the imagery, uh, this sort of post-apocalyptic, uh, the horror, this like in the in wants out horror. This idea of of the terror being inside of you, around you, invisible. And what of people structural are doing to other failure people. being yes. even worse than the out the, in the like the weird physical thing. environmental manifestation of internal evils and biases and failures. Um, a moral turpitude and whatnot. Um, that is a world that he brought to life very well in Chernobyl. And he just like you could tell from the moment that he said about this project and the kind of directors who were many of whom didn't actually end up completing episodes, but were discussed, uh, were, were not the people you would expect. They were all like a lot of art house film directors, uh, which certainly speaks to my language and interests. But uh, it, it just seemed like they were treating this story not in the way that Hollywood had ever treated video game stories, but with a integrity that a story is beautifully told as The Last of Us deserved. The Last of Us has received a controversial degree of attention and accolades, uh, controversial within the video game community, because I think they, they really roll their eyes at lay people being like, oh, they, like Craig Mazin, for example, being like, this is the greatest video game story ever told. Uh, and because they think that, that is sort of impugning this medium that has uh, a much wider spectrum of what its storytelling can be and then people look at something that functions and feels more like a conventional hollywood narrative something like children of men or 
or or something along those lines that fits the mold of the movie and decide that because it resembles a movie, that must be the apex of what video game storytelling can be. I think there's truth on both sides that like, yes, this is uh, not all that video game storytelling can be, but it just so happens that it is an incredible story immaculately told and uh, it does lend itself to being adapted to not a movie so much, but an HBO show. It's, it's almost amazing to me that all of the, the things aligned for this to happen. It really feels um, kind of miraculous that all of the, the right, sort of the, the money and the right people and the right network and all these things came together for something that feels as true to the spirit of the show as uh, of the game rather as the show does. Um, I have seen the entire season uh, twice <laughs> because I was not wasting any time. Uh, and I, as much as interested as I am in sort of vetting my take on it and hearing what everyone else say as the season progresses, uh, I have been so blown away by the quality of, of the show um, because it uh, not, you know, because it, it it's a thing of where like I, I love The Last of Us, but at the same, and I, I trust the people who are making the show, but at the same time, uh, Neil Druckmann, who co-created the game, is one of the co-creators of the show as well. But at the same time, I was like, do we need to simply port this story over into another medium and tell it sort of beat for beat? Like, what value is that? Is there in that other than giving me a new way to approach the same story? Uh, and something the show does very well, and I promise I'll shut up after this, uh, is that it immaculately captures the essence of the game, the feel of the game, and the emotional tonality of the game, while at the same time recognizing that it's operating in a different medium and using that medium to not only just like add new bits um, while recreating others sort of pixel for pixel, shot for shot, but tacking in a different direction thematically to focus on different things that tack away from the user experience of playing a game and the idea of control and um, sort of the moralism that was baked into that, the experience of playing the game, particularly what happens at the end of the game, which again, I won't spoil here, um, but it's dependent on you having a controller in your hands and being the person to pull the proverbial trigger. And the show knows from the outset that it doesn't have that tool in its belt. And so it goes in another direction. And while telling the same story um, with only minor deviations, um, at least so far, I mean, season two. Can you give an example three, of something but, that's happened already that shows that deviation? Like, because obviously, like the pulling the proverbial trigger hasn't happened yet, and I've only yeah. seen the three episodes. Like, what's yeah. what's a way that that showed us up early? So the third episode is one that everyone is talking about right now. We're sure. recording this right after that aired, and the third episode, uh, broad strokes, Last of Us post apocalyptic zombie show. Um, there, I mean, it's, I, I don't know to what extent it's worth going over the basic logline here, but it's essentially the road. There's a man who lost his daughter when the, on the day the outbreak started 20 years ago who is put in charge of essentially shepherding this teenage girl across the entire United States through a zombie-infected wasteland uh, that's full of all sorts of people who are even more dangerous than the zombies, from Boston to uh, Utah, ultimately, um, because what he doesn't initially know but soon finds out is that she is immune to the infection that has turned the world into mushroom zombies um, and might also the cure or the source of the cure to reverse the curse uh and in the third episode of the after the second episode in particular is sort of the last 40 minutes of it are really beat for beat from the game um in the third episode we sort of leave our two protagonists joel and ellie and spin off to focus on two characters who one of whom we meet in the game but is pretty different and 
his backstory is entirely different. We learn about it through a letter that you find in the game. Um, and rather than that, the third episode of the show expands that letter into a feature length episode of television that many people have rightly compared to sort of a gay first, a gay version of the first 10 minutes of up as it follows Nick Offerman <laughs> and who's playing Bill, who's the character who does show up in the game and his. Yes. So I, that feels like a very fast comparison, but okay. Yeah, I mean, this is just, I'm being reductive on purpose, just to help along anyone who is, uh, who is uh, playing catch-up here. But, um, but certainly I think that, that the up comparison speaks to the rhythm of the episode and sort of like how it pulls you along. But can, know, I, can I try answering Katie's question a little bit? No, it's just you sidestepped that it was different in the game. In the game, we meet Bill, Frank's already dead. We find a note that says Frank fucking hated Bill. Tried to escape, got bitten, didn't want to die, hung himself. So what you see on the show wow. is completely different and is, as David's saying, the difference of instead of you meet this guy, Bill, and he's saying weird things about a partner. And then as you're going through his booby trapped town, very video game like you find Frank's body and sort of have to infer that this whole relationship happened. We get to stop and have a whole relationship. Right. And because of its nature, the nature of the change in the adaptation, it's actually saying something more full about the world. Uh, that right, what- because the common denominator between these two things is that both in both versions of the story, the character's only function is to get Joel and Ellie a car. That's really what this boils down to: is that Joel and Ellie need a car. And in the game, that leads to you meeting the survivalist who's going to lead you through a bunch of booby traps and kill a bunch of zombies, and there's going to be a number of action set pieces before you eventually get to roll off with his car. In the show, they still it's still all about them getting a car, but it spends an hour, like roughly 45 minutes of screen time, just devoted to the backstory of these two people who we never see, Ellie never meets, and we only briefly glimpse Joel interacting with, uh, that, you know, own the car that they eventually take. And that speaks to the priorities of the different media. And the game is really about just keeping involving with the mechanics of it, building the world through action. Um, and getting you on to the next level. But it, the show is much more preoccupied with what it means to find something to live for, uh, for better or, or worse in some cases, in this post-apocalyptic world where hope seems to have been eradicated. And what it means to care for another person in a world that is no longer really able to care for itself. And the time that the show spends building up this backstory that in a narrative way, and like in a linear sort of, you know, one A leads to B leads to C way doesn't materially impact the plot beyond they get a car um, and a gun. Like the gun is important. Um, it has everything to do with the texture that they're building throughout the course of the show. And every little deviation that the series takes adds another layer to the, to the same ideas that this episode is sort of anchoring. And uh, it, it, it all sort of, even, even if like the last, even if, you know, Scenes later in the season are verbatim from the game. Because of this, they all have a sort of different undertone, a different under, a different tonality, and they hit a little bit different. And uh, they allow Joel and Ellie and Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey's takes on the characters to feel the same but different. Um, and it really means the sky's the limit for the next seasons. And it's very exciting to see for me, as you can tell. Katie, when we were talking about bringing this up, you're like, we should probably wait until after episode three. I believe you said because that's when I realized what the show was doing. Mm-hmm. 
what is your take on what the show's doing as somebody well, who hasn't played the video game? I mean, it made me think of Station Eleven. Uh, I think is a comparison plenty of people have made, where it's a show about the post-apocalypse, but a show about what you can hang on to in the post-apocalypse. It's not just about this like adventure of trying to get through it, but like about people and culture and society. And um, I thought that like not only is the love story powerful, but the idea of like Murray Bartlett's character wanting to paint the house and have friends over and like sit outside and have a picnic with wine with um, uh, what's his name, Pedro Pascal and the other person joel tess. ellie joel tess. joel and tess. tess they have this very nice picnic um i really like that element of it and i don't know how much i haven't seen past that one so i don't know how much more of the show is going to be about that but i thought it was a richer texture more like chernobyl like what david was saying where it's not just about this disaster but about the kind of many tendrils it has on the lives around it um i've seen some like scolds being like well if you liked that episode tri station 11 it's way better so i don't know if it continues in that vein but um <laughs> It's, it's very funny. Station Eleven is a really funny counterpoint because by the end of the first season of The Last of Us, you will recognize that these two shows, these stories, are doing wildly different things. Um, and well, I think people are specifically talking about this third episode. That is fine, but I think the, a lot of the power of the third episode, even though it it does tell a self-contained story in a way that I could probably be enjoying in a vacuum, as I was saying, does sort of feed into the larger arc of the story doing over the course of the season one i think one of the reasons that i think that you know craig mazin was so well suited to this job is because he kept that in uh in focus the entire time that he was really sort of all about the big picture of what they were doing um and the the the, the way you can hear my wife hack my as she recovers from covid <laughs> hacking up along in the background um i hope it's covid and not this is the beginning of a widespread uh, yeah. viral, um, fungal infection yeah i got bad news for you patches there there has been a pandemic uh recently oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, my gun but uh the um yeah i mean i think the resonance that this in the way that this episode and the sweetness of this episode and nick offerman being like oh, i'm satisfied i mean i just love his take on this character so much um, i gotta i gotta step in i gotta but step it, in it pays off um, in a very unexpected way in the ninth episode i i'm not i don't think i'm a scold to use katie's word here <laughs> but i i've always been shocked david that you love the last of us so much and that you love this show so much because i find it so tropey and so like it, it, it is it is so built on the backs of all these other kinds of stories. It's so familiar to me. Um, wow, you said and, this and about the, the Western Front. You just can't handle. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I guess tales. I am. Like I, I'm. Patches have seen all war and all zombies. <laughs> I've seen all war, all zombies. Absolutely. Um, and I think it's intentional. I think the game is born. Do you think out they of, should put the do, zombies into like a more interesting country? Like uh, they should port them like up Vietnam. to. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean that would actually be interesting. Uh, I just think that the game, the game is successful, and 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 I have not played it. I've never been a PlayStation owner, but as I've I think I've said on this podcast before, at least I've confided to you. I sat and watched the Last of Us game as a YouTube playthrough, so I've experienced the first one. I've never done that with part two. Um, didn't want to get ahead of myself, but I I. I think there was a reason to make the game, which is take a lot of storytelling that existed in other mediums and make it playable. I understand this show less, and I am not dramatically moved. I'm not emotionally moved by any of it so far, even this third episode, which I, again, you, you kind of related it to up in a reductive way, but it is that. I mean, it's, it's, it feels like it's just pulling the heartstrings. The fact that they used that Max Richter uh, track in the middle of it, I mean, it's so egregious to... <laughs> play the hits when it comes to 
being emotional and, and I, I do, having I do, this post-apocalyptic story. Let I me, do let me think that the, I know. I'm just going to agree with you. The, the Max Richter okay. trick, the Max Richter track, was a little bit of gilding the lily, particularly because the the other it was already ways, doing an okay job. Well, the other ways that the show uses music and even this episode uses music are so wonderful that that did feel like a little bit to me. But the, the episode, I, I'm just, it. I'm surprised. You know, for for all the like Marvel repetitiveness that makes you gnash your teeth, this feels so repetitive to me. This feels like what what feels distinctive to the relationships between Joel and Ellie so far as I I've seen them in three episodes, and you can speak a little broader about the whole season. But like, is, isn't this just more zombie stuff? Isn't this just more lone cub stuff, like lone wolf and cub, like? What is it doing that's actually different? We we compared to Station Eleven. Yes, it's on the same wavelength, but Station Eleven went so much deeper for me. Even with uh, like a, a queer relationship with Clark and Miles in the in the airport, like I got so much more of that relationship. It was so more much more alive and dimensional than just doing kind of a one off pull your heartstrings episode three kind of thing. Which I will say, Craig Mazin's pretty damn good at it. He did it on Mythic Quest. Uh, he, he's the king of the let's just spend one episode with characters who do not exist on this show for for emotional effect. Um, I just I can't get into this show so far. At least I'm sitting on the surface. I'm kind of waiting to plunge into it and kind of find. To your point, Katie, what is it doing? What is it ultimately going to say? Is I know the where the end. I want I want to hear answers. Yeah, this. yeah, I I know where the end of this season is going, and it's going to be pretty tough to watch but again it's still kind of playing the hits i i I again to be very reductive the walking dead kind of did this it did all this in in a way that was able to be very basic and just attract a huge audience and i've i've been very mean in telling people that i think the walking dead is like walmart and last of us is like amazon it's for like more prestige uh it's the cool (laughs) version of walking dead so far and i'm just like when is this going to be interesting? But when is it going to get psychological? Hits? If it's like well made and has like actors and characters, that's that a good question. About. That's what well, Marvel fans would defend against. I, every I think one, one thing that uh, one thing that one of the first scenes between Bill and Frank in episode three of The Last of Us makes clear is that it's the singer, not the song, uh, and the, uh, the the fact that it's. Recy- I mean, I did say yeah. I wanted Kate to answer this question, and I still do. Uh, but I, yeah, recycling. Certain tropes. I mean, and Last of Us shamelessly borrows from you know Lone Wolf and Cub, The Road, Children of Men, all these things that sort of stews together, but uh, in a way that has always felt sort of completely uh, alive and and emotionally emotionally incisive to me, uh, and lays the groundwork for a subsequent seasons in this case, but in the video game world, a, a sequel that you know adds. So many, so many, so many layers to the story, to the bedrock that that's created here. Uh, that I just, you know, I, I truly cannot wait to see on television. But Katie, I want to hear your response beyond beyond just like what's wrong with playing the hits. I mean, I don't know that I feel like deeply invested in Joel and Ellie at this point. Like he is gruff and grieving, and she is like spunky and youthful and is gonna like bring him out of his shell like i think tess was an interesting character and like i get that why she's not in it anymore but like i feel like that's more promising of like who else we might meet as the show goes on and how like the tapestry of it will expand it would be more interesting to have frank and bill 
uh, continue on. Like, I get why that's not where the story goes, but like, I want it. I want the story to expand beyond these two kind of trudging their way through the landscape and the characters we have seen thus far give me faith that they will continue to be interesting. Yeah, it's interesting it that the first a... the first three episodes have been re- like so light on Ellie and Joel's relationship, which is obviously the sort of fulcrum of the game and then like the the core dynamic that it all hinges upon. I mean, they get the f- the fourth episode, the first like large chunk of the fourth episode, as you'll see, uh, is sort of a course correction on that. It's really just all drilling into Ellie and Joel, Ellie and Joel, um, and then Melanie Linsky shows up, which I'm sure the TV critics will love. But um, and she's excellent. I mean, everyone should love it. Uh, but um, the uh, yeah, it's interesting that they that they pivoted away from that right at the moment when people are like, I need to invest in this relationship. But they they do bounce back. But I do think that just an, it, what episode three does is just another way of adding to the core of that relationship. It's setting the sort of the the, the room tone for it. It's it's setting stage for the relationship that they have because as Patch is saying like at its essence at least in the course of the first game the relationship between Ellie and Joel is not you know rewriting the book on this stuff but I think the world in which they're in and the conditions for their final scenes together in the season do make it something unique and do pave the way for a sequel or second and third season that explode that dynamic in ways that someone like Katie who's coming to it fresh will never see coming. I will say it it is very video gamey for better or worse. I don't know how this is playing to people who don't play games and just watch TV, but like there's a lot of questing. There's a lot of must get from point A to point B must get car must get yeah gun. I mean those first two um, episodes I do find that very a lot of that like with them in that museum of Boston history like you can very much see the video game scene <laughs> how do we get around from here but like it's an action sequence you know like it's not tiresome to to watch it I was engaged I cared yeah I mean and yeah. the the subsequent episodes I mean they are trying to get from point A to point B I mean that is the that is the game. Um, in the second game, it is not nearly that linear, but it's hilariously less linear. But um, yeah, I, I think that it never gets more video gamey than the second episode. Um, I think the fourth and fifth episodes which are more action driven. I, I think reminding me a little bit more of like Game of Thrones HBO than video games, uh, particularly at the end of the fifth episode, which you'll see it's like a big battle. Um, it. it it's a scene from the video game, but it's recast in a way that feels much more like a Sunday night HBO show than it does a level in a video game. Um, yeah. And I think it gets into murkier territory from there in terms of being able to trace it back to the games. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's been really interesting seeing just to go back to what we were, I was saying and monologuing about at the start of the segment, someone was coming at it from this angle of like, this is my thing. And like now, oh, wow, it's, it's, it's amazing that people are talking about The Last of Us on Twitter all day, every day, uh, for better and often for worse. Um, it, it is amazing that it's been such a huge hit. You know, like there was a minute there where I was like, oh, I was like, is this just going to be on HBO Max? And it's like, this is what no, it's like, me the most. Like, fanboy David, I'm just like, I'm unnerved. I'm not. This is I'm the not, scariest part of Last of Us. The only thing I'm that scared. I love about it being a huge hit is that it guarantees there's more of it. Other than that, I don't need it to be this all-consuming zeitgeist phenomenon, but it's just interesting to me that it's like it's very surreal, uh, and I think that is going to take on 
many new layers uh, and controversially, and I think, you know, acrimoniously on the internet uh, when the story continues in subsequent seasons. Um, and I think that the, the discourse might be even more heated than it was uh, around Game of Thrones when that hit seasons like five. And six. Oh yeah. Uh, are the, uh, the part, part two is going to have horrible discourse. Oh boy. Yeah. Uh, um, are that we are the video game bros mad about how gay episode three is? Some are. Okay, no, I've seen some. No, no, oh. because everyone was like, "Why isn't the game gayer?" That was the, the whole discourse well, around the game. I mean, the thing is that like we you see sort of the singularity in terms of discourse, where it's like at a certain point these days, if a property gets big enough, you actually have the same reaction. Uh, it's completely you know identical reaction across all these things, or you have. You know, the people who are coming at it from a bigoted reactionary stance. You have the people who say that it's not um, extreme enough who are being reactionary about it the other way. Um, you have the people who are just like, oh, I'm bawling my eyes out. Oh, my God, they completely copied the show. I'm obsessed with this. You have other people complaining that it's not similar enough to the book. And then you have me you know? screaming like, why is this not yeah. in Vietnam? I mean, we have <laughs> the same kind of people. Into Vietnam. <laughs> they are often recast. I mean, I am not going to be this archetype that I am for The Last of Us when it comes to some other property, as Patches has pointed out. Um, but it does feel like one, another, another, uh, excuse to sort of disengage from the discourse is that I feel like I've seen this discourse before, uh, you know, in, in every, you know, contortion of it, every episode of Last of Us, I'm like, well, this is basically the same reaction that we have to any sort of big, uh, monolithic moment in pop culture these days. Um, you know, find, find writers that you think have interesting things to say and cling to them for your life for sure. But in terms of like the heaving mass of the the Twitterati and the discourse. I mean, it's like, it's, it's all sort of the same. I just want bros um, to be mad. It's like, it's nice when the, but the bros are definitely mad. mad. And Katie, right. the, uh, I, I, I would hesitate to tell you to look into it because it could end up no, spoiling the uh, last of us part two, but the out, like the, the reactionary bigot outcry around the last of us part two was like a Gamergate level oh, shit storm, um, yeah. all over it's again. Gonna be the a lot of cutscenes from the game leaked a few months before it came out, and by the time the game came out, it was already just like a fucking nuclear bomb. Um, and I have no idea yeah. what this um, is. Video games, Katie. Here's and, go how I like, would su yeah. sum this up. David, very into The Last of Us. Seen it all. Seems like it's going to be good. That makes me excited as somebody who knows where this is going. Patches. Maybe not in The Last of Us. Maybe watch more of The Walking Dead than the rest of us because has has seen the tropes. Which might only be season one, but yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, I ran, I got way too far into those comics before I realized that. Oh, I read uh, all the comics. There, there wasn't. Uh, I, I feel like The Last of Us is really uh, distilling what it took uh, The Walking Dead uh, like nine seasons to get across, which is why I'm excited about. And then the thing that makes me the most excited with the way that the show's actually been rolling out is that uh, I am very excited how little it is actually about zombies, because I think when we like get to the end of it, I, 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 I don't think that Station Eleven emotionally is that far off. It's not about the circumstance. It's about... Uh, where, where everybody ends uh, I, their, their journey. I gotta say, there's like two more scenes of zombies the entire season <laughs> it's like nice. really really disinterested in zombies um yeah. the threat of them is uh, omnipresent but uh 
there are bigger fish to fry. It is a condition more than anything Which else. is good. And then by the time we get to Last OS, you know, part two, we'll realize that this is a show about something other than zombies and people can get mad all over again. But I'm I'm very encouraged where we're where we're going with this. And it's great. It's great to see people who enjoyed episode three, because I think it got the hook in for enough people that they're going to be able to get to the end of this season which I think is really going to be the, the make or break on if they like it or not. It's going to be fun. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. David may or may not. Uh, congratulations in advance. No, I'm, I'm definitely not going to be here next week. I mean, that's uh, David, congratulations in advance. Okay. We'll yeah, see you back here perhaps. later on. Uh, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches, deputy editor at Polygon, and uh, I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches, same as Letterbox, Mr. Patches, and we have a website, fightinginthewarroom.com, where you can listen to old episodes. I'm trying to think of a good comparison for for Last of Us. I guess we probably maybe listen to 1917 after we kind of railed mm. on All Quiet on the Western we, Front. I'm some of us probably. I think we, true. I'm sorry. You lost that war. Um, but I, while I was stabbing you in the heart over Aquai and the Reservoir, I also tried to heal you. Uh, that's, we found a bond. Um, I don't remember. Did we like it 1917? I didn't care for it. You know, Maybe, 1917, was, 1917 was the movie that I was supposed to see on the day that Elisa went into labor with our first child. Mm. Um, Is that so, how long ago yeah. that movie was? Sure was. I thought it was like two years ago. Lots of uh, World War One children over there at the early house. It was wow. in November of 2019. So anyway, fightingwar.com. Yeah. Listen to David talk about Please, his first child uh, on the 1917 episode. Can I beg someone not to make a World War One epic uh, anytime in the next? I don't know. <laughs> ever. You cannot Number keep up three. with this. <laughs> oh, is it me? My turn. Yeah, it's you. It's me, I'm the problem, it's me, and I am going to be fucking right off the next few weeks, so you can all enjoy uh, this space without me monologuing about why The Last of Us is the single greatest story ever told by humankind, by Patrick, <laughs> um, yeah. The um, uh, I'm David, you can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich. Uh, that's basically the only place you're going to be able to find me, if there, maybe on Instagram for the next couple of weeks. Um, cause I am going to be chilling at home with a little baby. I hope, uh, you can you know, find me on, on Instagram. It's my name. See pictures of the baby, I guess. <laughs> find me on Letterboxd. You can see me watching movies that aren't coming out this week for a change, which is great. Uh, and find us all together on iTunes and fighting in the war room. Leave us a review on iTunes. We'll read it live on the show or else I'll talk about how I'm suddenly into Marvel Snap. Yeah, and we're playing each other. I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can find me on Twitter at DA7E. You can email all of us or your international reviews or, and or at FITWR.podcast at gmail.com. You could catch more of me talking about zombies February in a podcast called Trial by Content. We're doing a best zombie movie three-week trial royale. Uh, you will not believe the things that I've seen this week preparing for that watching All Quiet in the Western Front in an infinity pool. There's nothing that can be done to a human body that surprises me anymore. Don't test that. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fair on Little Gold Men, where we talked more about Till Leslie this week. If you uh, haven't run out of things you want to hear about that. 
Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-A-C-H. And we're all uh, we're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, uh, where you can tell us which war you'd like to see zombies in, or you can answer <laughs> this week's lightning round question, which was. In honor of Knock at the Cabin and this podcast called Drive by Content's Worst Twist episode, what M. Night Shyamalan movie has the best twist? Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. We're done.